Thank you so much for coming. It's really lovely to be at the Hay Festival and I'm joined now by Urban Welsh and Marlon James. I don't know if you two know one another. You're doing an event together, but have you met before? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah when did we meet? Like four years ago, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. It was four or five years ago. Four or five years ago, yeah. yeah. And so what are you going to be doing tonight at your event? I was hoping you knew. <laughs> I've not got a clue, mate. I've not got a clue. I think just kind of the usual kind of just sort of shooting the breeze and all that. <laughs> what does anybody do at these events? It's all the same thing, you know what I mean? Everybody's just here to sort of kind of rap about, talk about shit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, you know. Okay. I wondered if you might talk about music a bit. I wondered if that was something you had in common, perhaps. Yeah, but I mean, it's like kind of... Um, I think it's pretty boring for people when they, you know, they come to a festival and hear people talking about, you know, in that kind of way, talk about music. It's like sort of taking somebody back to your house and sort of playing records and showing them all your record collection. That would have been good. Yeah. Just come with, like nice. coming over a favourite ten records or something. Coming with ten sounds, you reckon? Yeah. Five of Man would be Prince, but... Are you on Spotify? No, am I on Spotify? No, I did one yeah. Spotify playlist. I've been told to get on Spotify and I'm resisting it. Well, it means you have everything at your pretty yeah, much everything, everything at, your, like, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, at your yeah. at your fingertips. I don't when know you if want I want it. everything though. I don't know if I want everything. Mm. Do you want everything? Oh, on Spotify? Yeah. No. Do you want all music at your fingertips forever? I was talking about. Not was, really. I was music. talking in general. Do you want everything? Yeah. Do you want everything? Okay. No. All right. This is. A, I like this. This is a good a good way to start this conversation. What do we want? What do you two want? Um, what do you want from your writing life? Yours has changed a lot, Marlon, in the mm. last uh, nine months or so. Um, as you're no doubt sick of people constantly telling you and asking you what it was like. And I just mm-hmm. saw you on TV yesterday being asked that same question. And you're not about to ask it, are you? I'm, I'm not going to ask oh, it. Good. I'm going to say to you that when people keep saying, what do you want? How do you figure out what you want to do next with your writing life? Um, I mean, it's not very complicated. I just to figure it out. Um, I don't necessarily... I've never looked at outside pressure or outside anything to decide what to write. I, I just write a story I want to write. Um, regardless, I, it's, it's, um, I've always been one very, very sort of private and selfish when it comes to picking what I want to write. Mm-hmm. And I've also just never really... I'm not very good at listening to people. So, you know... Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm the. I remember. Do you mean people like editors? Do you mean people who? No, well, I listen to my editor. You will. Okay. Um, I listen to my editor. I listen to my agent. I pretty much fake listen to everybody else. <laughs> um, so no, I, I, you know, it, it has to be the story that moves me, and 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 I just because it moves me doesn't mean it's going to move me for three hundred pages, and the yeah, the story that will take me through that whole whole journey and I really it really is just um, what you know what pleases me really I I don't think um, that has changed because I just never I've never looked outside that far when it comes to writing so I don't think that's that's going to change now do you feel the same Irvin do you listen to people what was that (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah uh I don't really. I think. I mean, I think writing's a you know. I think the the word, the word selfish. You mm. think you nailed it there because I think it's a selfish act. I mean, it's a self. You know, you kind of um, you don't really. You know, it's like you you write a book for yourself in a way. You know, you want something that's going to kind of um, 
you know, amuse you and keep you occupied and engaged for the length of time because you've got you're stuck with this thing for months, maybe even years, you know. So you've got to, it's got to be something that um, is going to excite you and motivate you and move you. And you can't really, you, you know, I, mean, I know there's there's a, there's a lot of writers that are very good at, you know, like a lot of genre. Uh, writers are very good at looking at you know what what's happening in the market and how can I you know, I've got this notional idea of an audience how can I address this thing to them and all mm. that but uh, for me I can't work that way you know I've just got to find something that um, excites me or kind of interests me and or, you know it could be a character it could be a new character it could be an old character it could be a theme uh, it could be an actual story that I've kind of is, is coalesced in my mind uh, and just go with that you know and see and hopefully. Um, you can it'll hold your interest until you finish the book. If, mm-hmm. if it doesn't, you know, toss it aside and start again on something else. It does. Mm-hmm. In this case, I mean, this is one of the things that's obviously taken hold of you, and you've wanted to write about it. Is one of your most famous characters, Francis Begbie, and in the Blade Artist, we find him. He's not called that anymore, although he soon goes back to his his name. He's called something else. He's doing something else. Just tell us a bit about. The business of revivifying him in fiction. Um, yeah, you're just trying to reboot a character that's essentially dead because he's like, uh, he's a violent kind of psychopath with no self-control, and anybody like that is going to end up dead or in prison, basically. So there's no drama in that character; they don't really exist anymore in a fictional mm. world. So if you want to make them interesting and re- kind of reboot the character, you have to find something different for them to do. You have to find some way you can make a character like that different change radically or be seen to change radically or at least kind of change to an extent that they're in control of themselves uh, and, and he has radically changed his life well, at least on, the, you know, on I mean, the surface it started, the genesis of that started off with a big issue story and uh, I was kind of asked to do for Christmas and I kind of thought what if he's you know because you're always asking what if you know as a writer mm-hmm. you know, so you're saying like what if he's the most in, he's the most self-controlled person in the room instead of the biggest nutter in the room? Mm. That would be interesting to me. So I wrote him in that way, and um, and then it was like I had this character kind of change, and I, and I thought, well, what if his rehabilitation or his supposed rehabilitation wasn't that straightforward, and he was actually in some ways kind of still a nutter, but a kind of cold-blooded one rather than a warm-blooded one, um, and he was therefore more dangerous and less easy to, to sort of... Um, Less easy to kind of fall foul of kind of you know, like law enforcement agencies and stuff like that. So I kind of re- you know I got to writing them again. And it, it kind of it, it started off as an extended story basically, and then it just developed into a novel. Mm. But it is exactly as you say. It's a novel that really delves into what male violence is. I mean, violence in general. Um, but that particular kind of I don't think it, I don't think you can't. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's like I think it's funny. You know about trying to make kind of um, about statements of, vi- of violence because some, sometimes it's like kind of it's, you know, it's an individual pathology, sometimes it takes place in a broader cultural kind of sort mm. of context uh, and you're, you know, you're trying to look at from that person, from that character what the, you know, what the interplay between these two things is uh, but it's always got to be about the character, anything that's kind of um, any extreme form of behaviour only works in the context of the character you've written if, it's, if the character you've written isn't put together in a strong enough way to make that to make that work then it just falls mm. you know mm. so it has to be it has to be very much about that person how they feel you know how they they communicate and the constraints that they've had on them and the, the way that the, the, the life choices that they've made have been constrained by the things that have been going on around them. Mm. 
Marlon, how much was this a part of what you wanted to explore? This idea of violence, how it's contained in an individual, in a society, or indeed not contained. Because A Brief mm. History of Seven Killings, as its title suggests, mm. is a book very concerned with, with an act of violence and then with mm. a, a wider culture. Um, I actually wasn't even that concerned about violence so much. Um, not violence as as um, as a subject of a story, or violence as the major thing that happened, as so much as violence as the end product, or violence as the the initiator. So it's either it's at the and even in the book, it's at the front end and the back end of 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 the stories in in these these characters' lives. And um, um, I don't know if I I. I I don't think any of the characters, not even the most sociopathic, looks at violence as anything more than a means to an end, mm. and um, it doesn't make it any less just, any more justifiable than any other form of violence. But I, I, I don't know. I, it's funny. Um, the, the the I mean, the book has been called super violent, and actually, isn't that much, that that many violent scenes in it? It's just that the violence scenes resonate and they stay in and they won't leave. And there's an atmosphere of menace. Yeah, but atmosphere is, I mean, an atmosphere of violence isn't violence. Mm. You know, an atmosphere of menace, yeah, because we're dealing with, um, uh, you know, characters hatching a very, very, you know, diabolical plan. Um, but it's, it's, I don't know, I don't know if they look at it as, if it gets to the point where it's a sort of pathology so much as it's a tool. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's a, it's a, a tool very to do, specific a tool. To tool. Do what? What it's a, it? a tool, a tool for oppression, a tool for enforce enforce anti-communism, a tool for um, you know, American infiltration in 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 in, in Caribbean life. These things have specific aims. Mm-hmm. Um, gunmen don't just shoot because they're super violent and they get off on firing guns. They shoot because they're told by politicians. We're told by politicians. We're told by politicians. It's um, it's actually it's it's um. These things serve specific political goals more so than reflect the personal philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I hope people get in the book, but it's something that I think people need to be very clear of. Um, you know, guns didn't just pop in their hands. Guns came from somebody in the States um, to fulfill a very specific anti-communist agenda. It's a very, it's violence, but I think political violence or sort of political aims is a radically different thing than say a pathology what do you think Irvin because obviously when you're creating the stories of the characters in Trainspotting you've, you've, you've revisited as well as creating all sorts of other characters throughout your career um, but you are trying to pay, paint a portrait of a very specific society aren't you yeah, I mean, I think though that um, you know you're you're not really kind of. Um, I think I think the the, the sort of. Um, I mean, when Trainspotting first came out, for example, it was described as a very very violent book, but uh, you know, and, and in some ways it was like it wasn't. Uh, it, it, I think it was it was very violent to a lot of middle class people who didn't really see that as a kind of sort of you know they saw the superficial aggression of it and the, the violence that was the way people talked to each other. You know, mm. um, rather than rather than the actions that they did, you know, and how so they, it they, was about and, yeah. the lack of empathy that people have. With, I think like, so. I think people, you know, it's like I think the 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 reason that the the book did so well initially was because of the shock of the new. Basically, mm. it was like taking people into a world that they hadn't experienced in, in fiction before, and it kind of seemed to be a violent world, but it, I don't think it was really. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's like um, you know, sort of um, to me, it was like you know, it's like the that um, 
the violence is you know violence is always contextual as you know and you you, you mm. pointed out the you know that um the the political violence is mm -hmm. sponsored you know and it's like the, you know and even like kind of um you look at the street violence that was happening in, in Edinburgh, kind of, and it, and it still kind of does happen. You know, there's kind of kids fighting each other. It's basically, you know, it's like economic choices that were that were made as a society. You know, basically to go into a society that would they would become viciously deindustrialized. There would be no jobs. There would be no employment. So you'd have people, you know, around and sort of with, with nothing else to do, other than take it out on each other. Really, and it was, you know, it's kind of been the same as the same way the the drugs came in at that at that point in time as well. You know, so there is that kind of um, there is that interconnectedness, and there is um, as you were talking to, there is the, the omnipresent broader violence of the mm -hmm. state because mm -hmm. the state, all, you know, it's like if you if you accept you know that the the theory of the state, the state wants to have a monopoly of violence. If the state delegates kind of that violence or lets it happen, mm. it's letting it happen for a reason. The reason is kind of reasons of containment and social control. Mm -hmm. mm. So when things feel out of control, in fact, they're actually being controlled. Yes, in yeah. a lot of cases. Yeah. yeah. You you said there that 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 when your book for, when Trainspotting first came out, it was the shock of the new that attracted people to it, and that was not just in its subject matter or indeed its characters. It was in the way that you told the story. It was in the language, um, wasn't it? I mean, it was it was about writing in that particular style and of course style mm. is basically you know your two books mm. uh, it's the hallmark of, of them and just just talk to me a bit about what it was like to write in that voice um, well it just seemed to be pretentious to do it in any other way because um, you couldn't really see you couldn't really see people talking you know people interacting in that way it wouldn't have made it it wouldn't have made it real it would have been quite bizarre if you had people kind of um, talking in a kind of like standard kind of Queen's English imperialistic sort of uh, language when they've been through a whole kind of um, industrial kind of Scottish working class experience. So it just didn't seem to work. Uh, and the initial drafts of it were, were too ludicrous to sort of to continue with. You know, so I had to find a different way to making to, to, to make the kind of, um, to give it a kind of reality or a kind of vibrancy or a kind of sort of a, a three-dimensional life to the whole kind of cultural sort of context that I was writing about. And it took a bit of trial and error because you know, there's, there's a lot of other stuff that's, that's out there. And there's a lot of, um, and you know, the, the, you know, the, the mixture of the the, the, the the stuff that's used is like kind of uh, the language that's used is like um, old Scottish. It's kind of street argot. It's gypsy kind of um, kind of sort of words that you know, from the, the Romani community go up and down the, the, the east coast. So it's all these things have embedded together to to create that kind of sort of living language. Basically. Did you have any misgivings at the very start? Not about doing it, because you've explained exactly why you did, but that people would get it, that they would, they would. Yeah, because work I mean, it. it's like you read, basically, you know, and it's like, and it's like kind of, and uh, you know, it's like that's what literature is. It's about reading something in a book, and the book is the medium that you're using to to, to do that. And uh, when I look back on it, you know, I couldn't understand the word to us. It was just like a mess on the page. You know, I thought. Because you're not taught to read that way. You know, even if you're even if you're Scottish, you're taught you're not taught to read as you speak. Basically, you're not taught. You know, it's like uh, so. I thought nobody's going to persevere with this book. You know, if I find it almost unreadable myself, you know, <laughs> nobody, nobody else is going to give a fuck. Basically, yeah. like you know. So, um, but uh, it's funny that people do actually enjoy it. They they enjoy a break from kind of. They enjoy getting into something different, and they do they do they do feel very 
once I've been through the experience of reading it, they do feel very emotionally attached to the books because of kind of being taken, you know, they've either had their own cultural experience validated to some extent, or they've been taken into a different world, you know, into, in a more real kind of three-dimensional yeah. way. And that's why we read books, you know, we read to go into different worlds. You've you actually know, had to no make point, some yeah. effort. And yeah, you've made to you make know, some you effort, you get that. the payback from it. Like, mm. yeah. I mean, Marlon, to, to call your book a book of voices is a kind of huge understatement. <laughs> I mean... It is an extraordinarily ambitious sprawl of voices, a cacophony of voices in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, just tell me about how that started. Um, it started in the most organic way possible. I really was only trying to write one voice. Um, and that's how it started, with one voice. And one voice just wasn't enough. Um, two voices wasn't enough either. Uh, but that's how I was writing a novel, because that's how I wrote my previous novel, which was one voice telling the whole story. And with this one, I just kept running into dead ends. So the, all the other voices came really out of necessity because one voice couldn't sustain the story that I didn't know I was telling. In either way, I just knew I needed these new perspectives and I need a voice here and I need somebody to talk about it this way and I need to circle around this event and I need five different angles of the same subject. And, the, 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 you know, I, I tell my students, characters arise out of our need for them, you know, and... Um, that's how the voices came out. It was never. I never started out planning. I'm going to write this big panoramic novel. I just sort of realized that, and a friend of mine realized before I did because she gave me advice. She told me to. It's a multi-voice novel. That the type of story I was telling about the type of world that I was telling, one voice was never going to be enough. And that's how it all. It, 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 that's how it happened. Um, of course, once I started doing it, I really enjoyed it. Um, I do love voice. I love, um, I, you know, I almost switched to linguistics when I was in college. Um, you know, and I, I voice, accent, the way in which we use voice, the way in which we, 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 we include and exclude. Um, but also the different ways in which each character comes into a certain intimacy with the reader, mm. uh, regardless of their voice or regardless of their accent. So it's not just that, it's a demonstration of different voices um, it's also uh, uh, each character establishing intimacy with the the reader, regardless of how they sound. And um, so that was that was um, that was one of the things, the main thing that was playing playing as well. When you both of you write with all these voices, do they babble in your head, or is that the kind of thing fanciful readers like me think? No, they don't. I mean, it's like kind of. Um, I don't hear it as a big kind of conversation of different people shouting at each other. Um, it's something that you kind of you, you you're working to kind of get that effect mm. from something on you know from something on a page. You're trying to put things together that are going to that's going to give you that sort of that texture really. But uh, speaking for myself, I don't have that originally. I, don't, I mean, sometimes I can get the idea of people having a conversation and maybe you know that going back and forward. But I don't get the idea of kind of. Um, I think to to create these kind of layers, I think you have to just kind of it's like anything in writing. I think you just have to work at it yeah. and chip at it until it's you work. get it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that right, Marlon? You just yeah. have to keep working. It's work. Working. I, I I you know, um, writing is work for me. I, I grab my laptop, my computer, whatever, sit down, and I go to work. Um, I think someone has asked me yesterday. Um, I don't remember what question it was. Was something about. Um, how do I deal emotionally with the subject matter that I write? I'm like, well, I don't. Uh, as I, I don't deal with it emotionally. That's not my job. You know, I'm, As a writer, I'm kind of a journalist for these imagined lives. And as a journalist, 
how I feel about, you know, how I feel today shouldn't affect how I cover a wedding or a funeral. Mm-hmm. And and I bring that to writing as well. It's just, um, it's, it's a job, and I take it seriously. Um, but it's a job, it's work. I wanted to ask you both about migration. This is something that that unites you both. You you have you write about a particular area, even though sometimes urban and particularly latterly that strays. We've had a book set in, in Miami in, in your recent books. Um, but you write about a place, you've not written about it while living there. You've you've not done that while living there. What mm. extra dimension does that bring to your writing, being away from a place and trying to conjure it? Um well I've kind of you know I'm I've got a place, you know, back in Edinburgh that I go to and I can sit there and can write some of it. Uh, and I'm there quite a lot as well. So I don't really feel as if I'm away from it. I feel as if I, if I, if I want that kind of um, immersion, I can get it. But um, and I sometimes do take it. But I also like the idea that I can write a different novel about the same place from a bit of distance mm. too, you know. So you never really know. You know, you, you, want, you want immersion, you want to be there, but you also want the perspective of the distance can, can give you too, you know. You, and sometimes you, you know, you, you need to do both and sometimes you can do one or the other, and, you know, and it's like, it's just, there's so many kind of variables about, you know, where you are, where you're at, your kind of point in life or where you're at, the, you know, your relationship with the place that you're writing about. But um, I think you know I'm lucky that I've got the option of both, you know, and I, and I can and I, I do use the option of both when I write. Mm-hmm. Marlon, I mean, you know, your going and coming uh, mm-hmm. in uh, with Jamaica has been sort of complicated in some ways, and was then even more so when you won the Booker Prize mm-hmm. and you were this sort of, you know, extraordinary mm-hmm. superstar of world literature. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I if if I don't feel. I'm gonna put it. I'm trying to go up with the best way to answer this. The time, what I write about, even even the, the, the Jamaica I write about, I experience personally. So there is no sort of distance between me and that that time. The steps then, 1990 when I was still in Jamaica. I was in Jamaica all the way to 2007. So I'm still writing something I am very intimately, intimately aware with. Um, I do, at, that, at, the, at the same time, I do think distance did give me some kind of perspective. Mm. It certainly gave me a, 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 a give me some, I guess a, a, a little bit more bravery in some of the subject matter and even some of the form. But I don't think that was a direct thing. I think that was indirectly. Um, and I'm not sure I can attribute that to being away. Um, but I... I, I, I I do think distance can give perspective, but distance can also give a certain cluelessness, because what the, the the danger the danger, and I hope I don't fall into it, is that you start writing from nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, because you were you were writing about a, a past episode, right? You were writing about Jamaica in the seventies. Yeah. At the same time, being in the middle of something may mean you're the only person who doesn't have a perspective. Um, so there, there are pluses and there are minuses to both. I agree with 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 Irvin. It kind of has to be both. Sometimes at the same time, because you want to be fully immersive and you want to be fully distanced at the same time. And sometimes a neutral space is the best way to do that. 
this is a sort of related question and one, again, that I know you've talked about a lot, but the idea of representation, the idea that if you are a writer of colour, you're always mm. expected, uh, or it is presumed that what you write out about comes of experience mm -hmm. rather than imagination, um, mm. that you feel confined. I know we had a conversation a few months ago and you told me you were going to write a Viking novel. Uh, <laughs> and part of that you were saying was because, you know, like... A white writer can write a Viking novel and mm -hmm. no one says, you're writing a Viking novel. Right. Um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about, both of you really, about that typecasting, that pigeonholing, how it stops, how you make it stop. Um, well, I, I make it stop by just not caring that um, what, you know, as I said, I write the novel I want to write. I write the stories and I tell the stories I want to tell. But that didn't happen overnight. I did at some point think, as a black writer or as a Caribbean writer, as a so on, there are only certain type of stories I can tell. Or there are certain kind of stories I, um, that's expected of me or certain kind of stories that it would sell. You know, the, the coming of age, the, the life in the village, um, these kind of the stories. And they're important stories and they should be told. But the idea that... Um, as as a as a Caribbean writer or whatever, I can't write a detective novel or a sci-fi novel, or a novel set in fifteenth-century Florence. Um, was something that I had to learn that no, as a as a writer, I can really I can do whatever. There is no you know William Burroughs said there is no should in literature. There is no should in fiction. There there is not. You can do um, you know pretty much pretty much whatever. I mean, you were, you know, you came, as it were, of age at a time when everyone was talking about the new Scottish writing. And it was a particular, I mean, you've alluded to that style, a kind of authentic style. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't think you mean it's like, you can't really, you've got, it's, it's very spurious to talk about authenticity when something is like, you know, it's a contrived fabrication, basically, mm. like, you know. Um, but, um, I mean, I, I made a decision that, you know, because... People like you know, James Gelman and Tom Leonard have got into all these arguments about, you know, and really, really sound kind of uh, arguments about kind of sort of language and imperialism and internal imperialism and control and all the, you know, the linguistics of it and kind of, you know, sort of fanning and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, I'm not going to go over and retread the old ground. I'm just, we talked about not caring about it, you know. Mm -hmm. that, I think that's the, that's the greatest thing that you can, you can do, you know, because to me it's like kind of, nobody said to me like kind of, um, you know, nobody said to Evelyn Waugh when he started, like, why are you writing books about, you know, upper-class English people, you know, do you think you can write something something else, or can you write about, you know, people just assume that they have the right to do that, and you're only asking for the right that every other writer has, yeah. you know, so I think you just, you know, you, you just accept that, and you don't really care about the debate, you just go on with writing whatever floats your boat at the time, you know, and that might be something that people see is very much related to you and related to your culture and where you come from, or it might be something that, that people see that's got nothing to do with it. But I think you you have to allow yourself that kind of freedom. And as you said, the way you get to that point is just not to care about the argument at mm -hmm. all. I can see that totally. I also think it's one of the things that, I mean, many, many, many writers struggle with, that feeling of being allowed to do something, of permitting themselves to do something. Mm -hmm. And is that just a sort of bloody-mindedness? Do you just have to say, okay, I'm doing it? Uh, or is it, or is there a more sort of gradual kind of psychological state that you have to get yourself in to think, I can do this? Well, I know for me and for a lot of writers, you come across the book that gives you permission to write. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you come across the writer of the book that I go, oh wow, I didn't know you could do this. Um, you know, for me it was Salman Rushdie's novel Shame. You know, for a lot of people it was The Metamorphosis. Mm. Um, and sh- why yeah. was it Shame? What was it about? Um, just the way in which he sort of disposed of structure, just the way in which narrator had no problem interfering in story. Um, the way in which he played with things that element of surprise, which was like totally get rid of it. The way in which the novel would interrupt itself to talk about politics. All these things which, growing up, you know, with the, the idea of a novel being only what, something like Henry James, that was pretty shocking and pretty appalling. I remember when I, when I first read it. And um, but it also but it gave me permission to write. It was the book that made me go, oh, this I didn't know this could be done. Now I want to do something like this. And I think yeah, and I think sometimes that's what happens. You come across that book that gives you permission to write the way you want to write, or the way you may not even knew that's what you want to write. Was there a book like that for you? Yeah, yeah, quite a few. I mean, it's like kind of um, from sort of you know, I remember when I I picked up Naked Lunch, like you know, I thought. God, this is just a, this is just a beautiful mess of nonsense. Like you know, mm. I love you know, I love this. Like you know, and you know, I think if this guy can can write this, then you can write anything. You know, everything is everything is off the table. And then, kind of culturally, socially, it was like you know, you kind of pick up something like for me, it's like picking up something like James Callum's bus conductor Hines as a young guy and looking at this and saying, this is like a guy who's writing about a bus driver in Glasgow. You know, who's like kind of. But you know he's not really writing about the impact of technology and deindustrialization before it was kind of you know, yeah. so, um, so yeah you can you think well you know people can come from you know people can write from my background they can come from any kind of social milieu you can tell stories and all that they can write them down they can write them down any way they want so yeah you do you do you do kind of you seek out things that um, are going to give you that permission as well you know you you, you hear about stuff that's kind of a bit more out there and you think. And you, you, you kind of do get um, that sense of what you can do kind of bolstered by mm-hmm. engaging with kind of material like that. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a kind of final question now. Uh, and I'm not expecting you to give, you know, particularly uh, wide-ranging political answers if you don't want to. But it seems to me that for writers of fiction, for both of you living in America, that is particularly stranger than fiction time. <laughs> how does it... How does that... Feel? Do you just sit there drinking it in and thinking, how could I ever represent this in fiction if I chose to? I don't know if you should represent it in fiction. Um, one, I think there is a valid place for non-fiction, and I think there's a valid, there's something valid about being in the world without necessarily writing about it. Um, I think all those things are are, are important. As well, I think sometimes writers worry too much about where's a place of fiction or where's a place. I'm like, I mean, I don't where. I mean, my place is in a bookstore. You know, what I mean, I, I just um, yeah, yeah. I, I I think I don't think that's an, I don't know if, if that's a novelist's job anyway. But nonetheless, you can you can't you, you can't you can't, you can't turn chase, it you off. Can't, but you can't you? chase a zeitgeist like that in that kind of way, you know, because you'll never find it if you do. Sure, like, you know. but you do recognise things. You are attuned to witness character, to take in character, to take in narrative, to observe hmm. people. Yeah, and I just think, think you're living I think in a very. Like, you know, there's everything. You know, it's like you can talk about how kind of hyper real like American politics and mm. all that has become. You can talk about things like you know how. Shows like uh, the West Wing and Veep are so tame now in real life compared to the reality that's just kind of swamped over mm-hmm. the whole thing, you know. Um, but uh, I mean, 
everything is kind of everything is pretty much strange everywhere we go now you know it's like mm. sort of uh, it's kind of you know you, you've got I mean over here is very very strange you know I mean we kind of you know, living living in the USA I think God, we have a queen you know what I mean it's bizarre mm. mm-hmm. it's absolutely crazy you know and we have you know we have um, you know now, now and we've kind of we're, you know we're, we're arguing about whether we should be in or out of, of a, a European community which is a kind of mess as well, you know what I mean? The argument's a mess, the European community's a mess, the British government's a mess, you know? So all these things kind of, you know, are, are just as kind of, um, are just as weird to me, or as inspirational, or as not, mm. or as a turn-off to me as anything that's happening in the States. Well, I think, but I think um, Anavris is almost useless at this point. Um, it's like the best Vietnam novels happened in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know the best World War novels happened in the sixties. You gotta wait. Yeah, and I think that's what the novelist can bring, bring to uh, even a crazy one, a crazy one like what we're going through right now. Which is not say novelist can't write about whatever, but I think the kind of um, again perspective, I guess it's distance versus immersion, yeah. immersion again, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I think yeah. I think um, yeah. The the the. the um, I think it's just now we're going to probably end up with some really good nine eleven novels. Um, that um, that the the I think the novelist needs a little bit more time, for one to see where all of this ends up, mm-hmm. before they before that person can can bring something, bring something to it. Well, look, I mean, like John Updike, great writer, and he wrote that novel just after you know not that long after nine eleven, and. Um, a terrorist novel and it was terrible oh my god that was an atrocious book terrible book (laughs) but again Mm. why is a great writer who knows everything about America and American condition and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff why is he writing such a terrible book you know and I think a lot of it to do I mean obviously a lot of it to do is kind of you he writes from a very waspish perspective and America's changed as a whole cultural kind of sort of multicultural kind of place now and all the different ideas and people's coming into it but Mm. I I think the reason that um Another reason it was so bad was just that he didn't give himself that time and distance. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think it's also, I wonder, though, you're talking about time, and if you're a writer, you know, coming to the end of their career... He just, well, yeah, you that's what think, he thought. actually, like, I, yeah. I, I yeah. have to write this I don't have that much time now. left, like, you know. This I, want, is a I want to write the great 9-11 novel before I go, but... This is a, a two-down-beat way to end. I can't let it end right, like this. Well, he could have written a Vietnam novel. I thought trashing... You thought trashing up there was hilarious, but anyway. <laughs> well, listen, guys, you're going to go off and do your event uh, shortly. Do you enjoy festivals? And don't feel you... I'm I enjoy everything about you festivals. Don't, you don't have to say yes. Everything except, I love everything about them except the actual events. Like, you know, I love kind of um, hooking up with everybody and meeting people and all that. Mm. And, uh, I love kind of ch- chatting to, to people who've got readers and all that. And I, I, I even like in the signing queues and all that. But the actual events themselves, I don't, I'm not that much, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this will be better because it's you, buddy. Like, you know. is what? This will be better because it's. This will just be a yeah. chat. You'll be having a chat. Yeah. 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 Mm. What about you, Mother? Do you like them? Um, I don't hate them. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 I'm loving these equivocal answers. I mean, should we put it to you can't, you can't, It's like anything. You, you can't. Mean, I, I remember I went one year. I think it was just when I was when I was divorced and I was like kind of uh, loose and wanting to get out and all that. Mm. You know? I just went to one after the other, after the other, mm. after the other, and I just then after that I stopped for about five years because mm. I just kind of OD'd on festivals basically. Like, I think you, know, you can OD on it. Yeah, I think yeah, because I do love festivals and I and and I remember 
before before um before I had published a novel, before I think I'd even finished the first novel, I mean, I'd lived for the one festival that happened in Jamaica. Calabash. Calabash. Yeah. I, I mean, that was the that was the three days in the Jamaica when I actually lived. And the rest was a, a kind of undeath, um, in a way. So I do, and, and, I, and I think about the, the, the young writer, particularly if there are a lot of opportunities, who, who something like this is just a lifeline. So I don't. So I take them very seriously, and I and I think somebody, some somebody, twenty, thirty, forty, maybe sixty year old yeah. person is going to leave this and pick up and pick up a pen and well, write. Well, what I liked about I mean, I lived in Edinburgh, and you have the big Edinburgh Book Festival in Charlotte Square, and when I was getting into reading in my teens, really seriously, kind of hungry for books. It was the best place to shoplift books because you could go in and you could <laughs> you could just pass them through the bars. Are you, ad- are you advocating like, crime? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. God, no, we are no, so no. irresponsible. I don't yeah. know what's going to happen at our panel. So, <laughs> so but, um, but it was great. You know, you get to that space. I could just read these books. Like, you know, I had these, oh, enough books to read for months and months after. I great. have not shoplifted a book since I was like six. And it was a comic. Yeah. Oh, God, it was a Batman Superman comic. I had no taste. Well, on, on this bombshell of <laughs> criminality, I stopped, stopped shoplifting when I was forty, and I got I got um, I got fingered, cut collared at forty, and I kind of thought they let me away with it. I thought I'm not going to keep it. that. Was a, I always found the first time I, I got caught shoplifting books, I would stop basically, and it was just habit, you know. But you made it till forty. Yeah, but pretty good going. But there was, uh, you know, it's like they say, crime doesn't pay and all that, but. When I said I would stop, I came out thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds rich. I must have thousands of pounds worth of books that I've stolen over the years. <laughs> see, I just don't return my library books. Uh, see, that's well. low. No, that's low. <laughs> <laughs> I insist that you replicate this part of the discussion on stage tonight. I think it will, admittedly, it may give people wrong ideas, but it will entertain them too. Yeah, <laughs> as long as they steal his books. Like, yeah. But mind you, they're, they're taking... I always say to... Remember one wee guy from... From Glasgow, come up to me and goes, Irvin Welsh, I've read, I've got all your books. And he goes, oh, well done, Paul. He says, but I've, I've, I've shoplifted every one of them, I've never paid anything. I said, well, the, you know, that's great because the shops can't return them if they don't sell. You know, it's like sale return basis once mm. you're in the shop. Like, you know, so carry on, it's actually better for me. You know, <laughs> so it, ruined, it ruined his day. You know? <laughs> Enjoy your event. Thank you so much for sure. talking to me. It was, Thank it you. was great fun. Thank you.